Hello. Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a place where Brookings scholars discuss ideas about and solutions for the most pressing public policy challenges. I'm Fred Dews. My guest today is Dr. Kavita Patel, a fellow in the Economic Studies Program and Managing Director for Clinical Transformation and Delivery at the Engelberg Center for Healthcare Reform at Brookings. Dr. Patel is also a practicing primary care internist at Johns Hopkins Medicine. We discussed how her dual roles as scholar and physician inform each other. She offered her views about the state of healthcare in America and what can be done to reduce healthcare costs. And finally, we explored implementation of the Affordable Care Act and some of the innovations in healthcare delivery she sees ahead. Kavita, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Fred. When I learned that in addition to your role as a Brookings Fellow, you're also a practicing physician, the first thing I had to ask is how do you do that? Well, it's uh, I do it by splitting my brain at times and, and compartmentalizing uh, the parts of my life that deal with Brookings as well as what I have to do tomorrow when I go to clinic and think about the 30 patients I'm seeing. Uh, but in truth, I, I actually use the physician part of my world, which happens one day a week, to inform what I do at Brookings the other four days a week. And, and I do think now, in the beginning, I think it was hard for people to understand that I still practiced because it's very unusual. Mm -hmm. And people would say, how do you do this? And how do you balance it? It can be very challenging because patients don't just have problems on Fridays. They have problems Monday through Friday, actually right. all, all week. And so I've 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 learned that healthcare is as complicated as we talk about at Brookings, and my practical experience helps inform that. How does being a Brookings fellow inform your medical practice? Well, it's funny. We talk a lot in our medical practice about uh, accountable care or the cost of care or thinking about innovations in care. And I quickly revert to my Brookings self and knowledge by utilizing the, the work we do around accountable care organizations, the work that I've learned others are doing within Brookings around health care reform, mm -hmm. and have been able to actually inject some of that in conversations with patients. Because patients all, we live in an era where every patient knows a lot more about you than you think. All right. So a lot of them have chosen me. I often ask people, well, why do you come to see me? And they say, well, we see that you work at Brookings. And, <laughs> and, and that means that you also care about how our health care system is structured, which I find interesting. I've had a, a lot a lot of patients say that to me, and I and I, I'm sitting there thinking, well, that's a lot more intelligent than I would have expected. They've, they've done their research. <laughs> I would have, than I would have, than I personally would have even done in, in thinking about a doctor. But more and more people respect that, so I use that Brookings side of my brain and bring it into what I do with patients. So that they research their condition, and then they research their doctor the, as well. More than anything, and they're you know they're googling us, and so they know a lot more about us, and, and that's good. I think those are good reasons to pick a doctor that you mm -hmm. feel comfortable with. Do you find it challenging when patients come into your office with a condition and they propose a course of treatment or medicine or say, I read about this medicine solves internet. this problem? Yeah, I... I find it very challenging when they come with really thick stacks of printouts, which happens not too infrequently. And I'm looking at my clock and I'm thinking, I have 15 minutes and I don't know how I'm going to do this. So for me, the, I actually welcome it when people are really invested in what they are doing or what condition they might have or what drug they're taking. Mm -hmm. I really like that. I think that one thing I bring back to my work at Brookings is the fact that we are so overwhelmed and I'm a primary care doctor, so we're literally like considered kind of the front line. And sometimes people forget that the front line is pretty 
pretty inundated and pretty overwhelmed and at times burnt out. And so when a patient comes with all this information, I, part of me does this kind of, oh, gosh, I've got, a, you know, I've got five minutes. How do I deal with all of this? And my default ends up being you know what, we're gonna have to make an appointment for, you know, we're gonna have to, re- we're gonna have to finish this conversation mm-hmm. in our next appointment. But it leaves me with a little bit of dissatisfaction. So some of the work I'm trying to do now is related to, to how do we shift from the model of care that we have in the majority of the United States, you know, these 15 minute fee for service medicine, you get paid for what you do to a patient. And the more people you see, the more you get paid. How do we shift to then giving you more time with patients and then focusing on kind of what value you get mm-hmm. from the healthcare system, not just what you do to a patient. Is that what has been called uh, patient-centered care? Yeah, that's patient-centered care. And then, you know, some of my recent work with the Senate Finance Committee, Senate Budget Committee, it, 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 we refer to it as kind of care coordination, patient-centered care. We talk about accountable care organizations. Right. These are all ways of taking the way you and I go to the doctor and get 15 minutes and wait for an hour to get into the doctor's office. And then you leave and you're kind of thinking, what just happened? Okay, so do I come back in one month or when do I do this? It's all a way to turn that on its head okay. and make it more friendly for, for us as patients. Okay. Well, what worries you most about the state of health and healthcare in America? So, the, you know, we talk a lot, especially the work we do at Brookings, we talk a lot about the rising cost of care. What worries me more is that nobody feels as if it's their responsibility to tackle that cost. And let me let me tell you why I say okay. that. There was a study uh, released about two weeks ago where a, it was a national survey of physicians, and physicians said that cost of healthcare is very important, but it's not their problem. And they also did similar studies of other types of uh, what we call stakeholders in healthcare, you know, patients, insurance companies, and everybody says that the rising cost of healthcare is troubling, but it's not their problem. It's okay. it's the government's. It's someone else's problem. It's the government's problem. It's you know, you know, patients are lazy, and it's their problem. It's somebody else's fault. So what I worry about the most is that we have these challenges with co- you know care that's not coordinated and not really patient centered, and it's more expensive than it used to be, and it's continuing to be expensive, but it's also really it's. It, nobody feels like they have something they can do about it that's theirs. And I'm I'm sitting there thinking, well, if we're all kind of touching our noses and saying, not my problem, mm-hmm. well, whose problem is it? <laughs> Doesn't somebody have to take responsibility? And so I, I feel like as a physician, um, something that a lot of my friends from medical school kind of tease me about because they can make, you can make a lot of money in medicine as a doctor. And they know that um, I've taken some sacrifices in public policy by taking these more public jobs. And I've said to them, like, somebody needs to be working on how we fix the system and take responsibility for it. So I believe physicians, uh, and there are several of us within Brookings, I'm the only one practicing, but physicians need to take that responsibility. So by me practicing and working at Brookings, I feel like I'm trying to kind of represent that for other physicians who should, you know, who should listen to that message. So what are some steps physicians would take to take responsibility? The very first step is actually, you'd be surprised at how many physicians don't know about cost of the things that they prescribe. Right. So one of the very first steps is to just 
have the knowledge of, you know, if if I give Fred a prescription to get an MRI, you know what? Fred's going to have to pay probably eighty dollars out of pocket, but then his insurance company is probably going to have to pick up the other five hundred dollars, six hundred dollars for an MRI. Now that may be important, and I don't want everything to be about money. But what I think that does is that helps physicians. If you show physicians what the cost of a service is, then sometimes they think twice and say gosh, I, d- I didn't realize it was that much. Maybe I don't need that right now. Maybe we can do something else. Or maybe I can at least talk to the patient and say, hey, this is a little more expensive, but I think you need it, and here's why. So I think that's like a basic. I okay. mean, it, and there's a beautiful, everybody's been talking about the Time Magazine article called The, the Bitter Pill the by Stephen article. Brill. Right. Yeah, it, you know, it's so funny, Fred, because those of us in healthcare read that article, and we weren't surprised by any of it. Yes. And we, I read it, and I was like, so what? Like the, I read it and is, I said, I hope I never get sick. Like well, that. That's what I always say. I tell people, don't don't get sick. You don't want to go to the hospital right. ever. But, you know, I read that article thinking, so what? But the sad part, Fred, is that the whole country, like, realized in that article, this is crazy. We don't even know how much stuff costs. And and it's I think so a one first step would be transparency um, around cost and pricing for physicians as well as patients, but for right. physicians specifically. Well, speaking of patient responsibility, I also don't know how much an MRI costs. Right. And so I have pretty good insurance. And mm-hmm. if the doctor prescribes medicine or a procedure, I don't pay that much for it. Right. I don't realize right. that it costs that much. Right. Uh, some reformers had, have said transparency in prices that patients understand will also perhaps help patients consume less. Do you think that's true? I think that it, it, it has been true. It, yes, it has been true in certain circumstances that transparency about pricing will help change consumers' minds. But I have to be honest, it, it, in majority of cases, if your doctor tells you to do something, most patients will do it. And so the transparency only works when there's choice within class. So generally speaking, the transparency works well when you have information that says, you know what, Fred, if you can go to hospital A, your MRI will be $800. If you go to hospital B, that's just maybe two miles out of your way, it's $600. That's where transparency can make a critical difference is when there's choice within the same type of test or the same class. It's really hard, though, to expect a patient to have gotten something from a doctor and then say, oh, well, I see that that might cost me a lot of money out of pocket. Or, like you said, it might cost my insurance company a lot of money out of pocket or from their pockets. I might not do that. I've, I've rarely seen patients do that. It's often because they want to do what the physician tells them they need to do because it's our health. Right. Who wants to go? Uh, even when I don't know exactly what to do, patients kind of expect that I can direct them and tell them what to do and give them guidance. And I, and I know that sounds a little bit, sometimes I can sound patriarchal or like condescending, but I think when you're sick and you're vulnerable, you, you want to have someone to give you that advice. Yes, exactly. And if you're sick, you don't want to drive two miles to the next hospital. And that's the, that one of the things I find is that my sickest patients, I work in a medical building near a hospital. They always say to me, they're like, can I get this done here? Is there somebody in this building that can help? Because I, it's just convenient. So we talk a lot in healthcare about variation in spending across the United States. We know that the healthcare on average is much cheaper in, in, um, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, compared to Miami, Florida for the same services. And people often say, well, why is that? Geography matters. Okay. I mean, we know that location, location, location is true in real estate and in healthcare. 
Well, switching gears then, what makes you optimistic about the state of health and healthcare in America? The most interesting phenomenon, Fred, is that since the year 2002, um, our healthcare, the, the rate of inflation of our healthcare ha- prices has decreased over the last 11 years. So some have questioned, is this, you know, was this the recession? Is it health reform? There's been a lot of debate. Obviously, health reform just started in 2010. But certainly, we have had a slowdown in the growth of healthcare spending as well as healthcare cost, um, healthcare per capita costs over the last 11 years. And, and even more so in the last three years, Medicare as a growth rate has mm-hmm. decreased to approximately 3.4 to 3.9%. Now that's a, above the inflation rate. So we're still growing, even though we're slower, we're still growing at a pace that outstrips uh, the pace of the growth of inflation. All of that translates to me to, you know, the, so, so in my mind, that's news that mm-hmm. whatever we've been trying to do to change healthcare, even if some of it has been exacerbated by the recession, has been working. And that at least what we know is these reforms that we've started as a result of the Affordable Care Act okay. have not made things worse. If anything, we can say they've made things a little bit better. So I'm optimistic that if we can play, if we can work and keep doing this, it can hopefully just keep giving us better news down the line that we slowed down the growth of cost of care. So speaking of the Affordable Care Act, which of those reforms that have been implemented thus far do you think have made things better? Huge changes in the way we've paid hospitals. Uh, we no longer pay one in five Medicare beneficiaries is readmitted to the hospital within 30 days of being discharged. And many times we can avoid those readmissions by just doing better jobs of communicating mm-hmm. with hospitals and primary care doctors, for example. And we've changed the way we paid hospitals based on readmissions or avoiding readmissions. That's a huge, that's a a big factor. Uh, The second one that's been a huge driver has been the growth of these accountable care organizations. All that means is that we've taken doctors like myself in primary care practices and and helped them focus on taking care of a population of patients instead of just one patient at a time. So I have 500 patients in my population. Instead of saying, okay, it's just one person at a time, I look at all 500 of them and I can tell that I've got 10% of them are diabetics. Am I doing a good job taking care of the diabetics in my population? Actually, I'm not. So maybe we should design a program to target the diabetics that I take care of and see if we can do a better job. And we've now, so those incentives have already started as a result of the Affordable Care Act. And I think they're shifting the way doctors talk to each other and the way they interact with patients. Is, is technology uh, making an impact on, on costs and services? Technology, there's an ongoing debate about uh, the role of health information technology and whether it, quote unquote, is a return, on, you know, a savings on the investment. Mm-hmm. Um, I, so I would say the, mes- the message is mixed. The optimistic and my viewpoint is that we absolutely needed the information technology because having paper and doctors writing prescriptions is ridiculous. We had too many safety problems, errors, things, you know, just records that went into black holes and file rooms. So the information technology itself was critical to making, I almost look at it as a very expensive highway for what we needed to do to improve healthcare. Um, But it's very expensive and very labor intensive. So people have been waiting to figure out how 
all the billions that have been invested in health IT can return on the investment, and they've been disappointed. So I know that there's been some criticism that the health IT dollars have not necessarily saved anything for the healthcare system. I just think that we haven't been able to capture how much it's done by just reducing, you know, some of the headaches that patients have had if paper, if that's all they had was a paper record, and how many mistakes we've avoided because we no longer have doctors writing illegible mm-hmm. uh, prescriptions. You know, my uh, primary care doctor is all electronic. Right. I love it. So are we. Uh, that's great. In fact, I can't write. It, it, it's the other day I actually needed to write a prescription okay. um, because a patient said that she was going to not sure which pharmacy she'd be going to and she needed. And I just looked at her and I said, I, I can't actually write a prescription because I don't have a prescription pad. And so it's it's ironic. We used to all carry them in our pockets. Right. We don't even have them anymore. So well, uh, October 1st is a big date in the Affordable Care Act. Yes. That's the date that the uh, health insurance exchanges are going to come online. Right. Our colleague Henry Aaron has pointed out that the largest states, such as Texas, Louisiana, mm-hmm. Florida, with the largest uninsured populations, are also politically the most adverse to running their own exchanges, whereas right. the states with smaller uninsured are actively setting up their own state exchanges like Hawaii and D.C. DC. Mm-hmm. What kind of problem do you foresee uh, this disparity causing after October 1st? I don't I don't actually see because the states that opted not to do their own exchange have to default to the federally facilitated okay. exchange. So they will have an exchange. It'll be backed up by the federal government. So I, I don't see that much downside except that I think in, in you know, if, if you're a politician in the state of Texas, I'm actually from the state of Texas. I am too. I was, I was born and raised there actually. <laughs> so <laughs> I, don't, I don't have the accent. So we, we, uh, I, we have I, that in common. I, exactly. We, one of the things that I I know about Texas state politics is that if they can see that this federally facilitated exchange is, you know, not this intrusiveness of government and it's just it, and that people really like it and all the in- uninsured people in Texas, which we do have some of the highest rates of uninsurance, can benefit from it. There is I definitely see the political winds changing in the state and state politicians reacting more favorably to it. And they you could see other states like Texas, like Florida, looking at this and saying, wait a minute, we want to put our own imprint on this now. We don't want, you know, our state to be governed by some federal exchange. So I don't think there's going to be any downside in the short term. I think it will all be. Uh, from some shift and politically, how can states then message, well, no, we want to take this back. This is about our people. And that's what I predict will happen. So success will breed success. Right. That's what I hope. Okay. Right. right. Prior to that moment, though, we've seen uh, the Obama administration has had to delay key aspects yep. of the law, such as the employer mandate. Right. Uh, there was another uh, provision that was delayed ago. earlier this year with regard to copay limits. Mm-hmm. Right. And every time the Obama administration does that, his opponents, as if they need any excuse, jump all over it right. and say it's a bad law and we have to repeal it. Uh, should we be concerned that there might be other shoes dropping in implementation? I do think that the delays that have occurred are not I, – I know that everybody likes to kind of look at that and point to it and say, wow, this is really a problem. 
I personally don't think a year delay in the employer mandate is going to cause such a great shift. I also think that what people leave out of that story is how many thousands of things that are in the Affordable Care Act they actually did do on time. So in my mind, I don't think there's going to be a bunch of other shoes dropping or these are all you know, going to cumulatively cause a really big rift in the healthcare market. What I do think is happening, and I've, I've pointed this out to some of my good friends on on both sides of the aisle. Um, When we did Medicare Part D and implemented Mm -hmm. the prescription drug program in Medicare, you know, that was a Republican and it was a white Bush White House Republican effort and Democrats were opposed to it. That's right. But after it passed and it was signed into law, you started to see when Democrats went home in August, they got a lot of questions from seniors because seniors started seeing these ads for signing up for Medicare prescription drugs and all these bus tours around the country. And you started to see the Democrats kind of start changing their messaging and trying to help their constituents understand how could they sign up? How, what, how can we answer some of these questions? So what troubles me now is that if, you know, this is a much bigger program than an, an effort than the Medicare Part D program, but we're seeing such difficulty in, you know, from people who opposed health care reform, we are not seeing the same type of cooperation or at least uh, attempt at helping constituents understand what's happening. Mm-hmm. We're seeing active it's resistance. Active resistance and active roadblocks to helping their constituents understand how to interpret what is the law of the land. And that's where I'm really a little worried. So I don't think these delays are the part that concern me. I am concerned. Whether we had these delays or not, Fred, I'm very worried that we've got active resistance when it's the law of the land. The Supreme Court has upheld. I mean, I don't know how much more we have to do to prove to people this isn't about President Obama anymore. This is the law of the land. And and that's the part that's really worrying me. Kavita, I've heard some opponents of the law claim that well, you can just sign up for insurance on your way to the emergency room. Mm-hmm. So in the meantime, Don't do it. burn your Obamacare card, yeah, even though right. there are, there's no such thing as an Obamacare right, card. Right, right. How do you react to that kind of attitude? It, it just, you know, this is where you, your very first question was, how do I kind of be a doctor and a Brookings scholar? And this is where, as a physician, I'm very disturbed by that. Like, this is the last thing we should be doing is encouraging people to wait until the last minute to think about how to make sure that in a time of illness that they have a way to financially deal with that. I mean, health insurance in our country is really a way to protect you and me as individual patients from basically losing our finances, losing our homes, and losing everything we've worked for. I mean, at the end of the day, that's really what it's there to do. So sending that message is just as destructive to me as a doctor, as telling people to not wear their seatbelts and to just go out there and drive their cars on highways and speed. I mean, I personally feel like that's morally irresponsible okay. because we're preventing people from having the very security that they need to be healthier. And I, that's the part that frustrates me. And when I talk to friends who are physicians, even if they're opposed to the health care reform and they're upset about it, which a lot of physicians are, mm-hmm. even when I talk to friends who hated it and don't like the reform law, they've all agreed that someone with insurance is better off than someone who has to go to an emergency room and is worried about how they're going to pay for it. Not, nine, no question about it, 900%. And my understanding of the way the law works is 
that you actually cannot sign up yeah. on your way to the ER you because can't. there is a defined enrollment period. enrollment period. It's just like ours. It's just like any employee has an enrollment right. period. And if you don't get in in that enrollment period, you can't just sign up. Now, we do have a law in place. People do get things confused. We do have something um, called EMTALA, the Emergency Management. Uh, it's, it's, an, it's, an, it's the Emergency Management longer name act, which I can't remember the full abbreviation of, but Mm -hmm. E-M-T-A-L-A. And that was a provision put into place that stated that anyone who has an emergency should and can't be, cannot be denied health care. So if you present to an emergency room and you're having chest pain, the health, the emergency room can't say, where's your health insurance? You don't have one? Oh, we're not treating you. So EMTALA as a law prevents any place from denying care based on an emergency. And so I think people are confused when they say, oh, you can get Obamacare on your way to an emergency room. No, what they mean is that if you need health care and you go mm-hmm. to an emergency room, yes, there are laws in place that predated health reform to allow you to get it. But that's not, that's not an answer to how, as a country, we can stay healthy and be more financially secure. Well, because if you are uninsured, you can receive care, but you have to pay for it. You always have to pay for it. There is no question. I mean, this is part of what I think the uh, several articles that have been in the press over the last year have done a nice job of. They've shown how you not only have to pay for it, Fred, but because there's no insurance company to negotiate on the cost or the price, you actually end up paying more than someone who has money and has health insurance. So I end up paying less out of pocket because of what we talked about with health insurance companies paying some of that money. But I actually, even if if you look at what a health insurance company negotiates with a hospital, they negotiate down based off mm-hmm. of what the hospital's rate is. If you're uninsured, you pay that hospital rate, which is always more expensive. It's it's uh, it's amazing to me. I've gone to other countries and seen healthcare in other countries, and we've had scholars write beautiful books and chapters about healthcare in other countries like Singapore. And I've been shocked at how we've been doing this in America in the 21st century. It's amazing. I, I want to go back to your comments on Medicare Part D. I'm thinking about the the vast benefits in the Affordable Care Act, but they seem to be individually tailored to specific groups, and they seem to be coming online at different times, whereas the Medicare reform hit a large population of uh, a large voting age population kind of all at the same time. Right. So it seemed like the benefit was noticeable, tangible. it was immediate, mm-hmm. tangible, and now we have uh, specific provisions mm-hmm. uh, applying to different groups of people that I think are much smaller over time. Do you think that is kind of an inherent weakness in the success of implementing Affordable Care Act? I think there's been a lot of areas in in implementing the Affordable Care Act that have been inherent weaknesses. And you point out one of them that we had some targeted age-related provisions. I think the most notorious one is people 26 and under can get their parents' health insurance. Um, There are provisions for children, you know, different provisions for special needs populations. But what's what I think to me personally, so I think it's been hard, and yes, that's been an inherent weakness. I think a bigger weakness has been the fact that we've never really done a good job messaging about what is available in the Affordable Care Act. I have yet, I just talked to a, a very prominent media publisher yesterday, and he said, I'm still stunned at how few 
um, really good, like accessible and literate health information sources there are for people to understand what does Obamacare mean for you? Right. And so, yes, you're right. There are some targeted populations. I do think there have been some provisions within the Affordable Care Act that affected everybody, like the elimination of pre-existing conditions, mm-hmm. elimination of out-of-pocket limits, which actually got delayed this week. <laughs> so, right. so there have been some things that hit everybody. But, Fred, nobody talks about it. I, I have been... Part of one of the interesting things I've been trying to watch is kind of where is the media tr- like covering the implementation of the Affordable Care Act? I mean, you can read the New York Times, but that's not what the majority of the country reads. Where is, you know, where are we talking about this in the different forums that a lot of us spend time in and, and nobody's talking about it? Where should people get their uh, health care information? Should, should they get it from their doctor, from their member of Congress? I, I, I do think that um, their doctor is a good source, but most doctors are not aware of what's happening, which is also very sad. Mm-hmm. So I do think that members of Congress have as much trust. I mean, if, I would say that, yes, a resource could be members of Congress, but I'm also sensitive to the fact that most people in the country don't even know who their member of Congress might be. So I do think you have to look back at who's trusted in, in you know, who, when you look at the public and you kind of think about who do they trust and who do you and I trust? I mean, we all have these social networks. It's people in our neighborhoods, it's right. churches, it's schools. I think that it would be smart you know, to have like an outreach and educational effort for schools because there is not a single thing that parents don't interact with more than their kid's school. And how, you know, how helpful would it be if we actually have like a pipeline of messaging as well as information for from those resources? Grocery stores. I always think about how little information, you know, I spend every weekend in a grocery store. I what a what a logical place to like figure out like you know is there something that we could do to say here are four issues in your own health care that you should be aware of starting October 1st if you don't have health insurance there's a way for you to sign up second ask how much it costs for you to see the doctor that you see now mm-hmm. and you know there's real basic things like that um, and I I'm still I'm on the eternal search for ways where what we do at Brookings can kind of intersect with some of those environments to talk well, about it well, I know that Walgreens has said that they would promote aspects yes. of the Affordable Care Act. And, CV, and, and I've and, seen some of these posters, okay. actually, in the Walgreens. Now, yeah. at the same time, I know the Obama administration reached out to the NFL right. suggesting that maybe you could run public service announcements, uh, like I believe happened in Massachusetts. In Massachusetts with the Boston Red Sox. Yeah. And right. the next thing we heard was Republican members of Congress right. sending a letter to the commissioner saying, we have problems with that, and the deal was right. scuttled. That's right. This gets back to the point that, you know, this is the law of the land. It's been upheld by the highest court in the land, and we're still arguing about whether or not we should promote it. I mean, it's not it, – it, it's – in some regards, I've always personally, Fred, felt that – actually, I know the president's embraced kind of calling it Obamacare. Mm-hmm. In some regards, though, it's helped give people fuel for the fire to just say, let's oppose it. And I've, I've personally – always wished it was de-identified from the administration to say, this is health reform, and here's what it means for you. Well, another, in this context, I discovered something interesting. Recently, a committee in the House of Representatives, unanimously, 51 to 0, uh, approved a bill to reform Medicare physician payments. Right. Uh, And the Senate is expected to take it up uh, in the fall. It's called the the doc fix, I yes, believe. Yes, that's right. <laughs> um, and what interests me about this bill is that it's bipartisan. Mm-hmm. Its sponsor is a Republican from Texas. Right. Uh, it is about health care, and it feels like legislating. 
right. in an era when people say Congress can't get anything done. Right. <laughs> so what's going on here? So two things. One is that this is a perennial thorn in legislators' sides, this issue. So this is the issue called the doc fix. It's also affectionately also, you know, it's it's also known as the sustainable growth rate, the SGR. And all of this is around the formulas used to pay doctors for Medicare beneficiaries. And every year, because of the growth in cost and the growth of inflation, which has decreased, but it's still increased above the rate of the rest of the inflation index, because of the growth of healthcare costs, we are supposed to adjust how much we pay doctors by decreasing that amount in doctors' uh, reimbursement. And of course, that makes every doctor say, if you decrease how much you pay me for Medicare patients, I'm not going to see Medicare patients anymore. So as a way to avoid this, we've used every year what we call the doc fix to reverse the legislatively mandated decreases in Medicare reimbursement. So it it is, but every year doctors come to lobby on Capitol Hill and say, please do not cut our payments in Medicare. And every year doc, the Congress has to put through a patch to actually avoid a cut for the next year. The reason they can only do a year at a time is because it costs money. Anytime you avoid cutting doctors' payments, you got to backfill what you avoided with some sort of compensation to the system. So it costs money to do these patches, and everybody's sick and tired of it. And then in the last year, the reason this has become a bipartisan windfall is that the cost to fix and get rid of this SGR, it used to be about $250 billion. But because our Medicare growth rate has slowed, it's only $139 billion. So we're at a discounted rate, okay. better than ever. And this is why you've got Democrats and Republicans sitting side by side and saying, let's do something. So it's a pretty, impor- it's a pretty impressive time. My skepticism comes, the House passed a bill but didn't pay for that $139 billion in any way. Okay. So the question will be, how are we going to find that $139 billion to pay for this fix? To fund Obamacare. Is it, well, that's, that's, there's, there are certainly $139 billion in our, our budget, and some could say that that's one of them. <laughs> but I would, I would argue that's probably not the right, probably not the right direction. But thinking along those lines, uh, this week, Newt Gingrich criticized fellow Republicans for having zero answer to Obamacare. Right. He said, you, right. you criticize it, right. but you don't have any alternatives. That's right. And you should have alternatives, he's suggesting. Do you think, uh, from where you sit at Brookings and in your medical practice, that there are some common sense improvements that could be made to either the law itself or to uh, other aspects of healthcare, cost, delivery, yeah, I I definitely I actually think that anybody Democrat or Republican or n- a neutral party would say to you that there are some there are clearly some things we could do to to change aspects of the Affordable Care Act as well as things that we had not put in the Affordable Care Act that would be important. I would argue that the changing the way we pay doctors would be one of those examples. I mean, in the Affordable Care Act, we put pieces of things for how we pay hospitals. Um, We put in these programs for these accountable care organizations. But here's a great example. We don't really have uh, a good way to pay for telemedicine visits or visits done by telephone. We don't even really have a program to help do that if we think that that's helpful for patients. I mean, there are some fixes and tweaks and things we can do to modify what we do now. Some other big areas that were left largely untouched were changes in the post-acute delivery system. We had things in the Affordable Care Act that 
decreased payments to like hospice, home health, nursing homes. But we probably need to spend more time at understanding, especially as our population ages, Mm -hmm. we could use some real reform in the system of you get out of the hospital and then you're in a nursing home. And what does that mean? And how can you have maybe a way to do recovery in your own house? How do you get a caregiver that can be paid to help you in your own home? And I think those are important reforms. And I think when Newt made that statement and other prominent Republicans have echoed this. You can't just say get rid of Obamacare. You've got to have something reasonable to replace it with. And I have yet to hear kind of a comprehensive plan of what you would replace it with. Going back to uh, what we can learn from other countries and the Singapore mm-hmm. example specifically, because right. uh, Brookings Press has published a book about the Singapore healthcare system. Very good. <laughs> um, we've spoken about transparency and cost. You mm-hmm. mentioned home care. I think those are some of the things that mm-hmm. are proposed right. uh, in the book by uh, Bill Hazeltine. Yeah. Uh, are yeah. there are there some other countries we should look at? Other models of care? Yeah, France does a really good job with price transparency. France is one of those countries where you could even if you're if you walk into a clinic and then someone you know you need to have your shoulder X-rayed, if they don't have the prices immediately apparent to you, you can ask and they'll give them to you and they'll tell you exactly what they are before you even get the X-ray, which is unheard of. So France does a really good job of making sure that there's some transparency for that. I think the UK does a very good job of also bringing the best evidence to doctors and and how they treat patients. So the UK has a a very elaborate system for taking the evidence and science and actually building that into the way they treat patients. And I think we could learn from there. I'm going to tell you something that's going to blow your mind. I think we can learn from developing countries like India and China. Um, India, for example, if you go to India, you know it's cheaper for you to get a hip replacement. It's cheaper and better, maybe, for you to get your hip replaced in India. Why? They've set up entire hospitals that just do that. And they do it in less time, better outcomes, because the key is volume. And they've just got so many patients, and they've also got doctors all concentrated in one system that can kind of efficiently do things. So I think that there's pieces from probably every country that we could really draw from. I mean, why in Washington, D.C. do we need three different cancer centers all within 20 miles? Why not concentrate some of those services, get the best and the brightest, and the people who deliver the highest efficiency care in one place and say, you know what, if it's two miles too far for you, we'll get a car to bring you to that place because we don't want to put you out of your misery, but we know this is better for you. That's actually what the Cleveland Clinic is doing in this. The Cleveland Clinic has a relationship with Lowe's, the um, hardware Hardware store. store. Mm -hmm. Um, If someone needs a certain type of procedure that the Cleveland Clinic has really great outcomes for doing, they will fly, the employer will fly the patient and their family members and pay those costs to bring them to the best place. I mean, it's a really interesting model. And in India, they've been doing it for a long time for certain procedures. Uh, cheaper procedure in India, mind blown. It's, <laughs> it's, <laughs> now, I'm not encouraging people listening to go well, you have and to travel, travel there. to India. But it is it is it does give you kind of pause. You're like, well, you know what? That's that should that should tell us it is and you know, in America, we could do things better. We, we have do, a lot to learn. We do. Look, looking ahead, uh, in your role as a Brookings scholar, what projects are you working on? So right now we're working we're actually working very closely with uh, Medicare on how we can redefine the payment system to pay for cancer care 
for patients with heart disease and for other patients. So I'm working on that. We're also working on accountable care organizations. And uh, I also have a project around healthcare workforce issues. So something that we didn't get a chance to talk about. But if you, if, if everybody gets insurance and decides to call and try to get a doctor's appointment, they're not going to be able to. There's just not enough of us to take mm-hmm. care of people. So I've been trying to research and understand how can we kind of build teams that help take away some of what the doctor does and uh, delegate the tasks in a smarter, more efficient way. I feel like we could go on. I'm sure we could. I know Um, I could, but thank you for having me. Dr. Kavita Patel, thank you for joining me. To learn more about Kavita Patel and her research, visit brookings.edu.